This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Master Key by L. Frank Baum. Chapter 5 The Cannibal Island. Doubtless the adventures of the day had tired Rob, for he slept throughout the night as comfortably as if he had been within his own room, lying upon his own bed. When at last he opened his eyes and gazed sleepily about him, he found himself over a great body of water, moving along with considerable speed. "'It's the ocean, of course,' he said to himself. "'I haven't reached Cuba yet.' It is to be regretted that Rob's knowledge of geography was so superficial, for, as he had intended to reach Cuba, he should have taken a course almost southwest from Boston instead of southeast. The sad result of his ignorance you will presently learn, for during the entire day he continued to travel over a boundless waste of ocean, without the sight of even an island to cheer him. The sun shone so hot that he regretted he had not brought an umbrella, but he wore a wide-brimmed straw hat, which protected him somewhat, and he finally discovered that by rising to a considerable distance above the ocean, he avoided the reflection of the sun upon the water, and also came within the current of good breeze. Of course he dared not stop, for there was no place to land, so he calmly continued his journey. It may be I've missed Cuba, he thought, but I cannot change my course now, for if I did, I might get lost, and never be able to find land again. If I keep on as I am, I shall be sure to reach land of some sort in time, and when I wish to return home, I can set the indicator to the northwest, and that will take me directly back to Boston. This was good reasoning, but the rash youth had no idea he was speeding over the ocean, or that he was destined to arrive shortly at the barbarous island of Brava, off the coast of Africa. Yet such was the case, just as the sun sank over the edge of the waves, he saw, to his great relief, a large island directly in his path. He dropped to a lower position in the air, and when he judged himself to be over the center of the island, he turned the indicator to zero and stopped short. The country was beautifully wooded, while pretty brooks sparkled through the rich green foliage of the trees. The island sloped upwards from the sea-coast in all directions, rising to a hill that was almost a mountain in the center. There were two open spaces, one on each side of the island, and Rob saw that these spaces were occupied by queer-looking huts built from brushwood and branches of trees. This showed that the island was inhabited, but as Rob had no idea what island it was, he wisely determined not to meet the natives until he had discovered what they were like, and whether they were disposed to be friendly. So he moved over the hill, the top of which proved to be a flat, grass-covered plateau, about fifty feet in diameter. Finding it could not be easily reached from below, on account of its steep sides, and contained neither men nor animals, he alighted on the hilltop and touched his feet to the earth for the first time in twenty-four hours. The ride through the air had not tired him in the least, in fact, he felt as fresh and vigorous as if he had been resting throughout the journey. As he walked upon the soft grass of the plateau, he felt elated and compared himself to the explorers of ancient days, for it was evident that civilization had not yet reached this delightful spot. There was scarcely any twilight in this tropical climate, 
and it grew dark quickly. Within a few minutes the entire island, save where he stood, became dim and indistinct. He ate his daily tablet, and after watching the red glow fade in the western sky, and the gray shadows of night settle around him, he stretched himself comfortably upon the grass and went to sleep. The events of the day must have deepened his slumber, for when he awoke the sun was shining almost directly over him, showing that the day was well advanced. He stood up, rubbed the sleep from his eyes, and decided he would like a drink of water. From where he stood he could see several little brooks following winding paths through the forest, so he settled upon one that seemed farthest from the brushwood villages, and turning his indicator in that direction, soon floated through the air to a sheltered spot upon the bank. Kneeling down he enjoyed a long refreshing drink of the clear water, but as he started to regain his feet a coil of rope was suddenly thrown about him, pinning his arms to his sides and rendering him absolutely helpless. At the same time his ears were saluted with a wild chattering in an unknown tongue, and he found himself surrounded by a group of natives of hideous appearance. They were nearly naked and bore spears and heavy clubs as their only weapons. Their hair was long, curly, and thick as bushes, and through their noses and ears were stuck the teeth of sharks and curious metal ornaments. These creatures had stolen upon Rob so quietly that he had not heard a sound, but now they jabbered loudly, as if much excited. Finally one fat and somewhat aged native, who seemed to be a chief, came close to Rob and said, in broken English, "'How get here?' "'I flew,' said the boy with a grin." The chief shook his head, saying, "'No boat come. How white man come?' "'Through the air,' replied Rob, who was rather flattered at being called a man. The chief looked into the air with a puzzled expression and shook his head again. "'White man lie,' he said calmly. Then he held further conversation with his fellows, after which he turned to Rob and announced, "'Me see white man many times. Come in big boats.' White man all bad. Make kill with bang sticks. We kill white man with club. Then we eat white man. Dead white man good. Live white man bad. This did not please Rob at all. The idea of being eaten by savages had never occurred to him as a sequel to his adventures. So he said rather anxiously to the chief, Look here, old fellow, do you want to die? Me no die, you die, was the reply. "'You'll die, too, if you eat me,' said Rob. "'I'm full of poison.' "'Poison? Don't know poison,' returned the chief, much perplexed to understand him. "'Well, poison will make you sick, awful sick. Then you'll die. I'm full of it. Eat it every day for breakfast. It don't hurt white men, you see, but it kills black men quicker than the bang-stick.' The chief listened to this statement carefully, but only understood it in part. After a moment's reflection, he declared, White man lie, lie all time. Me eat plenty white man, never get sick, never die. Then he added with renewed cheerfulness, Me eat you, too. Before Rob could think of a further protest, his captors caught up the end of the rope and led him away through the forest. He was tightly bound, and one strand of rope ran across the machine on his wrist, and pressed it into his flesh until the pain was severe. But he resolved to be brave, whatever happened, 
so he stumbled along after the savages without a word. After a brief journey they came to a village, where Rob was thrust into a brushwood hut and thrown upon the ground, still tightly bound. We light fire, said the chief, then kill little white man, then eat him. With this comforting promise he went away, and left Rob alone to think the matter over. This is tough, reflected the boy with a groan. I never expected to feed cannibals. Wish I was at home with mother and dad and the girls. Wish I'd never seen the demon of electricity and his wonderful inventions. I was happy enough before I struck that awful master key, and now I'll be eaten with salt and pepper, probably. Wonder if there'll be any gravy. Perhaps they'll boil me with biscuits as mother does chickens. Oh, it's just awful. In the midst of these depressing thoughts, he became aware that something was hurting his back. After rolling over, he found that he had been lying upon a sharp stone that stuck out of the earth. This gave him an idea. He rolled upon the stone again and began rubbing the rope that bound him against the sharp edge. Outside, he could hear the crackling of faggots and the roar of a newly kindled fire, so he knew he had no time to spare. He wriggled and pushed his body right and left, right and left, sawing away at the rope, until the strain and exertion started the perspiration from every pore. At length the rope parted, and hastily uncoiling it from his body, Rob stood up and rubbed his benumbed muscles and tried to regain his lost breath. He had not freed himself a moment too soon, he found, for hearing a grunt of surprise behind him, He turned around and saw a native standing in the door of the hut. Rob laughed, for he was not a bit afraid of the blacks now. As the native made a rush toward him, the boy drew the electric tube from his pocket, pointed it at the foe, and pressed the button. The fellow sank to the earth without even a groan, and lay still. Then another black entered, followed by the fat chief. When they saw Rob at liberty, and their comrade lying apparently dead, The chief cried out in surprise, using some expressive words in his own language. If it's just the same to you, old chap, said Rob coolly, I won't be eaten today. You can make a pie of that fellow on the ground. No, we eat you, cried the chief angrily. You cut rope, but no get away, no boat. I don't need a boat, thank you, said the boy, and then, as the other native sprang forward, He pointed the tube and laid him out beside his first victim. At this act, the chief stood an instant in amazed uncertainty. Then he turned and rushed from the hut. Laughing with amusement at the waddling fat figure, Rob followed the chief and found himself standing almost in the center of the native village. A big fire was blazing merrily, and the blacks were busy making preparations for a grand feast. Rob was quickly surrounded by a group of the villagers, who chattered fiercely and made threatening motions in his direction, but as the chief cried out to them a warning in the native tongue, they kept a respectful distance and contented themselves with brandishing their spears and clubs. If any of your fellows come nearer, Rob said to the fat chief, I'll knock em over. What you make do? asked the chief nervously. Watch sharp and you'll see, answered Rob. Then he made a mocking bow to the circle and continued, I'm pleased to have met you fellows and proud to think you like me well enough to want to eat me. But I'm in a bit of a hurry today, so I can't stop to be digested. 
After which, as the crowd broke into a hum of surprise, he added, "'Good day, black folks,' and quickly turned the indicator of his traveling machine to the word up. Slowly he rose into the air until his heels were just above the gaping blacks, but there he stopped short. With a thrill of fear he glanced at the indicator. It was pointed properly, and he knew at once that something was wrong with the delicate mechanism that controlled it. Probably the pressure of the rope across its face, when he was bound, had put it out of order. There he was, seven feet in the air, but without the power to rise an inch farther. This short flight, however, had greatly astonished the blacks, who, seeing his body suspended in mid-air, immediately hailed him as a god, and prostrated themselves upon the ground before him. The fat chief had seen something of white men in his youth, and had learned to mistrust them. So while he remained as prostrate as the rest, he peeped at Rob with one of his little black eyes, and saw that the boy was ill at ease, and seemed both annoyed and frightened. So he muttered some orders to the man next to him, who wriggled along the ground until he had reached a position behind Rob, when he rose and pricked the suspended god with the point of his spear. Ouch! yelled the boy. Stop that! He twisted his head around, and seeing the black again make a movement with the spear, Rob turned the electric tube upon him and keeled him over like a ten-pin. The natives, who had looked up at his cry of pain, again prostrated themselves, kicking their toes against the ground in a terrified tattoo at this new evidence of the god's powers. The situation was growing somewhat strained by this time, and Rob did not know what the savages would decide to do next, so he thought it best to move away from them, since he was unable to rise to a greater height. He turned the indicator toward the south, where a level space appeared between the trees, but instead of taking that direction, he moved toward the northeast, a proof that his machine had now become absolutely unreliable. Moreover, he was slowly approaching the fire, which, although it had ceased blazing, was a mass of glowing red embers. In his excitement he turned the indicator this way and that, trying to change the direction of his flight, but the only result of his endeavor was to carry him directly over the fire, where he came to a full stop. "'Murder! Help! Fire and blazes!' he cried, as he felt the glow of the coals beneath him. "'I'll be roasted after all. Here, help, fatty, help!' The fat chief sprang to his feet and came to the rescue. He reached up, caught Rob by the heels, and pulled him down to the ground away from the fire. But the next moment, as he clung to the boy's feet, they both soared into the air again, and although now far enough from the fire to escape its heat, the savage, finding himself lifted from the earth, uttered a scream of horror and let go of Rob, to fall head over heels upon the ground. The other blacks had by this time regained their feet, and now they crowded around their chief and set him upright again. Rob continued to float in the air just above their heads, and now abandoned all thoughts of escaping by means of his wrecked traveling machine, but he resolved to regain a foothold upon the earth and take his chances of escape by running rather than flying. So he turned the indicator to the word down, and very slowly it obeyed, allowing him, to his great relief, to sink gently to the ground. End of chapter 5